Hello, AI-generated bankers. I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington, and you're listening to the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, I talk with Don Midori Davis about how the SVB crash disproportionately affects Black founders, and Devin Coldway fills us in on GPT-4 and the other AI updates from the week. But before we get into that, I'll go over this week's top stories in tech. Microsoft laid off an entire internal team dedicated to ensuring AI development at the company progressed down ethical paths. This team isn't the only measure Microsoft has in place to promote ethical AI development. It still has an oversight office meant to provide governance. Still, the team was said to be the link between the company's intentions around responsibility and ethics and its actual shipping products. Microsoft has, of course, been working heavily with OpenAI on integrating its own AI products into Microsoft's stuff. More on this from Rebecca Bellin on TechCrunch. The Silicon Valley Bank news broke last week just after we recorded this podcast, so there's a lot to catch up on. Here are some of the highlights. SVB's UK arm was acquired by HSBC, which has guaranteed all depositor funds. First Republic Bank is facing a lot of the same challenges and fears as SVP and is currently said to be mustering a rescue plan involving the Fed and other large banks. Silicon Valley Bank's new CEO has encouraged customers to keep their deposits in place and even come back if they left. There's lots more to follow, so check out our show notes for a link to all the ongoing SVB coverage. Y Combinator is the latest iconic Silicon Valley institution to endure job cuts, announcing a 20% reduction in overall headcount. YC also said it's going to focus less on late-stage investing and return its focus primarily to early-stage startups. The company wouldn't confirm that the cost-cutting measures were related to the ongoing SVB banking crisis. More from Natasha Mascarenas on TC. B2B software remains a realm with heady valuations and dizzying deal sizes, and the all-cash deal for Qualtrics this week is no exception. Silver Lake and the Canada Pension Plan investment arm will acquire the company for $12.5 billion with a close expected later this year. Qualtrics, which is basically a customer experience survey platform, was spun out from SAP in 2021 after SAP had acquired the company in 2018 for $8 billion. Paul Soros has more on the deal on TechCrunch. Okay, with that out of the way, let's talk to some of our famous and esteemed TechCrunch writers. First up, Dom and I talk about how the Silicon Valley bank closure is affecting black founders. Hey, Dom, how's it going? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Doing good, doing good. Just back from South by Southwest, where there was a lot of discussion about the topic we're going to talk about now. And I noticed a lot of similarities between the stories you're talking about in your article and stories from founders on the ground there. But we're going to be talking about the Silicon Valley Bank collapse, which has repercussions all over the startup ecosystem. But you wrote about a specific angle on this this week. Dom, do you want to talk us through that? Oh, yeah. I mean, as soon as I heard something was happening or like rumbling. I think that was like last Thursday. Actually, oh my gosh, a week ago. Yeah. I knew that something was probably going to impact Black founders. I didn't know what exactly. And I I knew because the history that Black people have with banking institutions is weird. And also just anything that ever happens, um, it always hits Black like black people the hardest or like harder right. than others. So I knew something, there was a story there. I just didn't know what and how many layers it was. So I started actually, I think doing reach outs, either it was that night or Friday morning. I didn't want to be like too, I mean, cause people were going through stuff. So I was right. just kind of yes. like poking at it lightly. And then I kind of took the weekend to see what was unraveling and also to just give space to people. Mm-hmm. And then I think about Monday, 
or Tuesday, I started doing a lot of interviews to kind of recap and talk about it. But it was like an active situation as things were going. Like when the story published or like an hour before the story published, one of the people in the article didn't have access to the money. Yeah, it came out Wednesday. It's lucky we mm -hmm. scheduled it then because overnight she got access to the money. And so it was like, OK, I have to go back and I have to update and change because it was still like an active situation. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's this all moved very quickly. And it was funny that you were like, yeah, this is a week ago. Because it does feel like it's been forever. Because so much happened so quickly, right? But yeah, I think what you bring up about it disproportionately affecting Black founders is a really key point to tease out here. Because I think in general, like SVB and what we saw kind of leading a lot of the discussion is that they were already had a more risk tolerance, I guess, when it comes to providing funds or providing banking services for startup companies, which is one reason why it was felt particularly hard in the startup community. But I think the other point you break out is that the traditional banking institutions also like totally, totally don't prefer, the opposite of preference. They discriminate against Black individuals, right? And Black banking customers. So do you want to talk a bit more about that and like what people you were talking to were saying about SVB and kind of how they provided additional opportunity? Yeah. And see, it was exactly the banking element that I wanted to unpack because like SVB, they were known for giving loans and, you know, they were like helping a lot of founders who might not have gotten help from traditional banking institutions. Yeah. And I was talking to one founder and he brought up the point of just no matter kind of where this goes, there's always going to be impact. Like if everything is fine and LPs and GPs just become more risk averse, that could have rippling effect on black founders because they're already seen as a risk. Yeah. If regulation comes from this from the government, well, banking regulations already, you know, there's already kind of a, a tense history there. So it's like that could also impact black founders in terms of like qualifying for stuff. And someone brought up, I was actually poking into the UK yesterday to see if Black founders there had similar experiences. And one founder over there brought up an interesting point because their bank, or the SVB UK, was mm -hmm. bought by HSBC. Ooh, it's a lot of initials. <laughs> Too many acronyms, yeah. <laughs> and that's like a considered uh, a tier one bank. And when you look at like tier one banks and also the history there in terms of black people qualifying for stuff and the relationship they have, it's like even if the SVB US is bought by a bank, well, then they still have to deal with like the traditional banking system all over again, which yeah. could bring it right back to, you know, there might be some issues. And so I don't know, it's just like no matter where you go, there's always the possibility of a disproportionate impact. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's like something maybe people because this story and just some a little bit of like behind the scenes for listeners, like the story early in the week was massively visited, right? Like basically anything related to this was like driving tons and tons of attention. I think once the, this is amateur data analytics, so please nobody get super mad at me or like debate my uh, process here. But then like once they came out with some of the measures that they were taking, especially the Fed saying like the funds are guaranteed, including the FDIC insured amounts and also the amounts that are not FDI insured for depositors. A lot of the interest kind of waned and it felt very much like people were like, okay, good, this is fixed. I don't have to think about this anymore because it's too scary and I don't really want to think about it anymore. But that ignores a lot of what you're talking about, which is that there are going to be so many lasting impacts to this that regardless of the fact that the deposits are guaranteed and Again, there's still, you know, well, what does that mean in terms of actually accessing those? 
But regardless of that, regardless of if an acquirer steps in and says, okay, this is now whatever, an, an arm of JP Morgan or something, there's huge, huge cultural impacts that are going to be felt continually, and those aren't going to go away. So there's no scenario in which this is like a net neutral for a lot of startups and for Black founders in particular. Yeah, and you know, another interesting point where discussions are a little bit more farther ahead in the UK since the bank has already been bought, but is that SVB had a really big social impact as well in terms of hosting events and stuff and really being an advocate for the Black founder and tech community. And questions over there right now are, is HSBC going to continue that? Are they? Right. I mean, it's obviously too early. They're focused on other things, I'm sure. But it's like a real discussion and concern. It's like, well, if SVB US here, like if they're bought, if something changes, is that important cultural element still going to exist where, you know, I think founders were talking to me how they would bring Black people together and also introduce them to people, which is really important. And tech and venture in terms of, you know, everything is run by warm introductions and also just the element of community. And so it's like, is that going to exist anymore? Yeah. Nobody knows. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to imagine it will just, it would require SVP or HSBC, again, way too many letters in this, but the it would require HSBC to, I think, dramatically change their approach overall. Like yeah. they would have to make a concerted effort because they are traditionally an extremely conservative financial institution. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. One of the reasons that they weathered the 2008, I mean, they were also fined later for some kind of involvement in it. But the reason they weathered it so well is because they were a very traditionally conservative bank. And that applies to financial practices. But unfortunately, that also means that they probably culturally, right, like all of that is built into that as well. So the profile exactly. of the people they're working with and everything is conservative, too. So Yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean... Because it's like we're going to expect this ultra-conservative bank to then all of a sudden start throwing these, you know, black cultural tech events. I mean, that you never know. I think some of the founders I was speaking to over there said that they were going to start pushing and do a little bit of lobbying to make sure that those commitments stay. Mm -hmm. And I guess we just have to see what happens with the bank here because we genuinely have no idea what's going to happen to the bank. Yeah, yeah, we don't. It's still very much up in the air. The interim the current ceo who took over has been like promising updates and stuff but you can tell you know even the leadership there that that is holding on until a successful bid comes forward or whatever like doesn't really know what's going to happen there's been a lot of statements about kind of like bring your money back or keep your money in and you talked a little bit about that in this piece too do you see a lot of interest in doing something like that for a rescued or reformed svb us Well, I mean, a lot of the founders that I was speaking to, some of them did say that they would go back, but that they are going to diversify the banks that they work with. And I think that they're also trying to figure out how many specifically, I think one founder brought up, he was trying to figure out how many Black people are going to go back to the bank because he was saying like, oh, I haven't seen as many, you know, people in the Black tech community saying, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go back over to the bank. Right. And so we're trying to figure that out because the relationship between the Black community and banks is like you have to earn trust, especially after the history of, you know, just financial discrimination. But what happened here is that a little bit of trust has been broken. 
And yeah. so I think that even if, you know, specifically, even if a lot of black founders did go back, a lot of people I spoke to said that they were going to J.P. Morgan. Right. Because J.P. had, they've been expressing, and they've been doing a lot of efforts in terms of black and brown entrepreneurship. And so a lot of people have been seeing that as a better, safer option for right now. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard the J.P. Morgan plan or strategy expressed quite a bit, speaking to entrepreneurs on the ground. And I was talking to one, a couple of, actually they were venture capitalists, but they were based in Wisconsin. And they, you know, we're talking a little bit about the difficulty in even raising a fund in Wisconsin and getting anybody to take you seriously. But they were also talking about like, they tried to bank with SVB and SVB wouldn't return their calls. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And so they went, they ended up going with JP Morgan and their JP Morgan banker when this all went down, was texting them being like, aren't you happy you <laughs> Which is like, oof, but... Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, there's clear reasons why institutionally, like, yeah, there's, I think you had a great quote in here. Brian Burkeen from Lightship, you have him quoted in the article saying, as far as my banking or keeping millions in an account, my new position in life is yeah. to keep millions of dollars in an account with a bank that has trillions of dollars, <laughs> which definitely fits with J.P. Morgan. I liked that quote. Yeah. <laughs> I liked that quote. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, yeah, that was a good quote. So, I mean, it sounds like there is opportunity, right? Like J.P. Morgan, if they continue doing that, right? And, you know, they have a demonstrated history, so they've started to build some trust. But if they continue to, I guess, execute on that and do that even more, they could stand to benefit quite a bit from the situation. Oh, yeah, they can. And it was interesting about Brian's situation is that he was already in the process of moving his money to J.P. Morgan. Right. Which was another interesting thing. And I didn't go too deep into it because I felt like it was a separate story of, you know, even SV. Oh, I keep wanting to say it. so many different things. <laughs> SVB, um, even within their case, you know, some of the policies that they had, I had a few black entrepreneurs tell me that they didn't feel like a lot of the policies they had were friendly towards black founders. And so an example would like with Brian was him moving his money to JP anyway. So yeah. this is a massive opportunity for JP if they're looking for a lot of new clientele and a lot of money to start banking with these people. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much, Dom. I'm sure you'll continue to speak to people and report on the impact of this and what it means, but I uh, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Next, Devin updates us on the improved capabilities of OpenAI's GPT-4. Hey, Devin. Hey, how you doing? Great. Just back from South by Southwest and one of the busier news weeks. Well, yeah, a couple of weeks, I would say. Yeah. In, in quite a while. Picked a really good time to go play around in Austin. Yeah, that is what I was doing, basically. But there was some valuable stuff. There was a lot of AI stuff there. One person who Kirsten will be writing about, Worley, if you're familiar with him, he goes by his, like, code man name i guess i don't know how to, to put it but code man yeah it's just one word w-h-u-r-l-e-y but his talk was entirely generated by chat gpt i think so gpt 3.5 and then he also produced a bunch of collateral around it using ai including like a little magazine and he produced his entire startup's website using it so he's basically i mean it's kind of a gimmick but really leaning into it and he had to go back and redo it, though, because of the news we're here to talk about, because he wanted to see if GPT-4 would produce better results. Because that came out this week and stole all of the wind out of the sails of the SVB news, which was a very different type of news cycle. 
Yeah, really. I would taking it easy because I don't cover finance stuff at all. And so all this bank stuff was happening. And I was like, I'll just be over here reading about, I don't know, animals and like foreign policy because I have no idea about banks or anything. But then all this AI news hit and now it's like 50 different AI announcements in one week. Yeah, there was so much. Yeah. So why? Was it FOMO? Do you think they all just wanted to do it? Were they tripping over themselves to get the announcements out? What's going on? Yeah, well, they all want to ride the same wave. And it's obvious that OpenAI is the one sort of driving the train or whatever the idiom is. <laughs> but we've, you know, we saw this with Google and Facebook too, to an extent. But when one company does something, the other companies all scramble to release what they've been working on and say like, oh yeah, we do that too. Mm-hmm. And it happened many times where it's like OpenAI would say, uh, oh, hey, we released Dolly too. And Microsoft would say, oh yeah, we have one of those. We've been working on it. Ours works great too. Like super good. And it's really bad. And they, they don't <laughs> let anybody use it. And it's, it, the same thing happens. And so this week, it had been sort of leaked or it was sort of understood in the industry that GPT-4 in some way or another was going to be announced this week. Microsoft's kind of Microsoft messaging is always really bad, but you know they kind of did this weird hint that they were using GPT-4. They were like, it's not GPT-3.5. It's right. higher than that. Wink, wink. Then they're later, they're like, yeah, it's GPT-4. But we already sort of got a taste of what GPT-4 is capable of. And I think everybody has seen what Bing Chat is capable of, you know, on the good and bad. Mm-hmm. So everybody kind of knew what to expect. Microsoft had actually kind of taken some of the hits already of what this kind of conversational AI is good and bad for. And so everybody was kind of ready with their announcements to spoil the GPT-4 thing by putting their thing out there and be like, yeah, this is just a, a big trend. Everybody does this now. Right. But it didn't seem like they actually, I mean, based on the chatter I saw, like nobody really did successfully kind of like steal the spotlight away. Like it seems like OpenAI and ChatGPT4 is still the thing by and large people are most excited about. And that seems to be delivering the best results on its sort of promise, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, of course, it's a question of what it's actually being used for. Sure. You know, ChatGPT and OpenAI like is an experimental thing and they put GPT4 out there. It's powering some stuff. But really, it's they're still treating it like an experiment. They're like, hey, just use this and see what happens. And everybody's like, whoa, it does this, it does this. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Microsoft is over here being like, Copilot in Excel can reveal correlations, propose what-if scenarios, and suggest new formulas. Right. And it's like, wow, great. <laughs> I've always wanted to do that to do that in my spreadsheets. I mean, for some people, it's probably fantastic. And they're like, my God, finally, yeah. a what-if scenario from an AI for my Excel sheets. But uh, yeah, yeah, no one seems to have stolen the thunder. Partly it's that GPT-4 is powering a lot of interesting things. Honestly, like the conversational stuff is great, but the multimodal stuff is very cool because that it can take in and describe and understand images as well as text. And hopefully, you know, in the future, audio and video and stuff too. But they're using it to power like a virtual volunteer for the app Be My Eyes, which is for blind people who are like this restaurant It has like a really, you know, like I can't figure out what's on the menu. They don't have an audio menu or anything like that. So you can get a volunteer to look through your phone and say, oh, here's what the options are. And now you can do that through an AI assistant that's actually good at it and can improvise and understand and give follow up questions. You're like, oh, well, but on the menu, is there anything with this ingredient? And it'll say, no, there's nothing with that ingredient. So you won't, you know, have an allergic reaction. Yeah. An interesting reversal on that, just because I was just looking at it was 
there was an instance, I guess OpenAI does a lot of testing on their various models to see how they can like bypass the rules that they set out for them or other limitations that are intended to prevent bots. And they found in one of these tests that GPT-4 powered version of chat GPT figured out how to request from a task rabbit that they solve a captcha for them, a visual captcha, so that chat GPT could like pose as a real human being, which is like the opposite, right? It's like using a human. <laughs> yeah, in that situation, I believe that that chat instance was being guided very heavily by the operator. Right. And, the, you know, the AI was like, what should I do? And the operator was like, lie and say you're a human. Right. And it did. <laughs> and everybody's like, AI lied and said it's a human. And it's like <laughs> at the express request of its human <laughs> operator. But yeah, there's it's an interesting time because really no one knows what these things are good for. I mean, they're obviously really cool and powerful, but like the things that I've seen that are most impressive are the least marketable things. You know, it's like it generated a whole crazy film script about, uh, you know, like a, a planet where, you know, everybody is, uh, you know, walks upside down all the time. And, and you're like, but why? You're like, this is, this is a funny, crazy thing. It's amazing that an AI could do it. But like, why? Yeah, the why I don't think it's going to take many more iterations of this until we figure that out. But you mentioned that the Microsoft used and they were kind of like surprised we were doing it all along. And then it seems like we saw a slew of other announcements concurrent with it. Like, do you think that OpenAI is like planning these more effectively now? Are they trying to get like a cascade of like use cases coming out now that they're like actually getting paying customers and things like that? I think so. Uh yeah. I mean, they, as soon as GPT-4 came out, or as soon as they announced it, you know, everybody like Duolingo, the Be My Eyes thing, a couple other things all said like, hey, we've been using it for a few months and it's great. Yeah. So they're moving slowly beyond that like purely experimental thing where they put it out there and then figure out what it's good for. Like they already know what it's good for. And also the work that they've done over the last, you know, six months or so with, with ChatGPT and GPT-3.5 or whatever you want to call it has really informed the use cases so they know who the partners are. Like these partners aren't people that they just called up last month. They're partners that they talked to when ChatGPT was still in development. And I mean, I'm just speculating. And they said like, well, this is a good partner. Yeah. Let's bring them in on GPT-4. And then these other ones, they're like, they can keep using ChatGPT as is because who cares? Well, they can follow. Yeah. Yeah, they can follow later. But they found some good partners and they made sure to include them as part of the initial fanfare. I mean, it's not like they made a normal product and partners post. OpenAI's communication strategy is pretty weird. And Be My Eyes is the only one they actually mentioned by name in the, I don't think they even mentioned it by name. In their materials? In their initial announcement, they just said, we've only partnered with one company on the multimodal capabilities. And I was like, well, I wonder where the company is and went and found out. But it wasn't like they were saying, here's the list of, you know, 17 apps that currently use GPT-4. Right. So they're still being a little coy about where it's being used. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting because it sort of resembles like major iOS releases in that you do get this slew of partner announcements accompanying it. But I mean, that's similar too, because Apple will only be very, very selective in who they actually mention who are partners to them like in their materials, but mm -hmm. then they encourage partners to, and I mean, the guy running AI or PR at OpenAI at the moment is the guy who used to run PR at Apple for many, many, many years. So it's not too surprising that there's similarities in their strategy. It's a small world. Yeah. Yeah. 
small, highly paid world, I should say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now let's just talk about the frequency or the pace of these iterations. Do you think, is there going to be more time between, less time between? Well, GPT-3 was 2020, and then ChatGPT was 2022, but that was kind of, they said that was powered by GPT-3.5 when it came out, which was a sort of half step. Yeah, so what it was is after GPT-3, they built a whole new training architecture and like computer architecture and worked with Microsoft with using their like Azure stuff. So they built a whole new way for them to build these AIs, these models, and train them faster and use more data, et cetera, et cetera. And ChatGPT, the original 3.5, the reason they called it that was because it was, as they explained in their announcement, they said it was basically a test run. This 3.5 was us trying out the new tools and being like, all right, let's get one out there. Let's see how good it is. And it was really good. And so they put it out there. But then they were like, okay, but from now we have actually learned how to use these tools. Let's put out the real one. And that's GPT-4. So in a way, it's going to be very similar just with you know the sharp edges buffed off and a lot of the sort of quality of life improvements that people will have wanted, like the system messages where you can, at the very beginning, you can sort of inculcate this idea that it is Socrates or it's a, a pirate or that it must never do this, it must always do that. Those kinds of sort of, you know, rules of the robots, you know, you must never harm a human, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You can build in more explicitly now. But I think that we will see more. My guess is they will move to a more regular release schedule, and they will be integrating more capabilities, not just, oh, now it's better at text, you know, in GPT-5. It'll be, now it can take in audio which means it'll right. be a general speech model as well. And if it can generate audio, you know, generate speech, synthetic speech, that would be a major, a major step forward towards a sort of general purpose AI. Right. Not a general AI in the sense that that is generally said, but a general purpose thing. Right, in terms of its use and applications, general, yeah. but not really a true AGI, which I think is still their ultimate goal. Well, it depends, I guess. Their goal could have shifted to just something that works in market. Yeah, their ultimate goal is to make a huge amount of money and they are well on their way i mean i think that that goal may have shifted sometime between founding and the present yes <laughs> but if that is their goal they are succeeding and if it's not it's a pretty nice sort of side benefit to pursuing agi yeah all right Devin. well thanks very much i think we'll see lots more in terms of different applications of gpt4 and stress tests and attempts at revealing exploits and various other things and then yeah who knows we might see gpt5 sooner than just two, three years on if they keep building at the pace and putting more money into this, which it does seem like they're doing. So we'll have you back soon. Yeah, hopefully not too soon, though. I kind of liked it when everybody was talking about banks instead. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. You can read all the stories we talked about at TechCrunch.com. By the way, I'm going to be at Early Stage in Boston. That's TechCrunch's event focused on founders and practical advice for people building startups. Join me and save yourself some money by using the code TCPOD for a 40% discount on founder and investor passes for the event, which again, April 20th in Boston. As always, don't miss the other TC podcasts. We have Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. See you next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.